opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, our show is about the history of our most contested right, which is privacy. I just read this fabulous book called American Privacy by Frederick S. Lane. It's called American Privacy, the 400-Year History of Our Most Contested Right. And let me just read you from our Constitution before I introduce our wonderful guest. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. And no warrants shall issue, but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. That's from our United States Constitution, our Fourth Amendment, 1791. Well, this wonderful book really traces 400 years of how privacy has evolved and, I guess, devolved as well. So I let me tell you about this great guest. Um, I had a, a wonderful time talking to him recently. I think he is just fabulous, doing great work. And he is going to be coming to us all the way from the East Coast. Frederick S. Lane is an author, attorney, expert witness, and professional speaker on the legal and cultural Implications of Emerging Technology and Privacy. After law school at Boston College of Law, uh, he clerked for two years for the Honorable Frank H. Friedman, Chief Justice of the United States District Court of Massachusetts. Then he moved to Burlington, Vermont in October 1990, where he worked in private practice for five years and wrote his very first book, Vermont Jury Instructions, Criminal Civil and Criminal, with John Dintz and Richie Berger. And then in February 1995, he launched a computer consulting business that in time led to his current work as a forensic computer expert for that he provides expert t- testimony. And he is also the author. And let me read you some of these great books that he's written that we're going to have to have him back to talk about these too. Um, let's see, the, the books that, let's see. Um, well, in, pa- in response to the passage of the Communications Decency Act back in 1996, Frederick began researching the legislative and media response to the rise of online 
adult industry. And the resulting book, Obscene Profits, the Entrepreneurs of Pornography in the Cyber Age, was the first of what is now five soon-to-be-released mainstream nonfiction books. I'm going to have to read that one. That sounds a little racy and a little dicey. But he also has The Naked Employee, How Technology is Compromising Workplace Privacy, and that was uh, published in 2003, and that is a huge issue. We've just been hearing about, you know, your emails not being private and your cell phone calls not being private and your phone calls not being private, (laughs) and uh, that's worrisome. Okay, The Decency Wars, The Campaign to Cleanse American Culture, and that was in 2006. The Court and the Cross, The Religious Rights Crusade to Reshape the Supreme Court, that was in 2008. And then American Privacy, which was released in 2010. And then I know he's going to be um, releasing in 2011 now, Cyber Traps for the Young, How a Single Click Can Ruin Your Child's Life and What You Can Do About It. And he has, oh boy, he has done a lot of other things. He's appeared on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart to discuss the decency wars. And he's also appeared as a guest on a variety of other national television programs, including ABC's Good Morning America Weekend, NBC's Weekend Today, ABC's Nightline, CBS 60 Minutes, and a whole bunch of BBC documentaries in addition to those televised appearances Uh, Fred has been interviewed by numerous radio shows, magazines, newspapers around the world and related to these issues. And I think he's really wonderful. We're so thrilled that we have him today on KUCI. And you can find out even more about him at our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy, where we've got his picture and and his bio and, of course, a picture of his book and a link to his website. There's another website that you can find out more about computer forensics at computerforensicsdigest.com. Fred, thank you so much for joining us all the way across the country. Mari, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, I really enjoyed this book, and I especially got a kick out of some of the people who wrote testimonials on the back of the book because they've been on my show. Mm -hmm. Dan Soloff has been on twice, and of course, Jeffrey Chester, the author of Digital Destiny, he's been on my show twice as well. So um, we're all in this great company and uh, doing some wonderful, really, you're doing wonderful work. So let me ask you, so how is it and what inspired you to write this book? Well, that's a great question. The The community of privacy people that you're mentioning, um, honestly, is part of the inspiration because when you look at what people are doing out there to promote privacy in this country and to help us preserve you know, those pieces of privacy that are still left, um, it's inspiring. You want to get in there and fight the good fight with them. But I think more specifically, um, the reason that this book occurred to me is that um, both as a computer forensics expert and then also um, with my work on the school board and you know, with kids of my own, I've had a chance to really look at the changes that are taking place in privacy in this country. And it it was really sort of a personal passion to find out where the right to privacy came from. I mean, the interesting thing is that when you listen to even little kids, you know, three, four, five years old, they'll stamp their feet and say, I've got a right to privacy (laughs) when they're doing something that they shouldn't be caught at. But, you know, it's, it's an ingrained aspect of our society that there is this right to privacy. But it means such different things for all of us. And I think that 
that was really part of what I was trying to understand was what is the right to privacy? Why do people have such varied uh, approaches to it? And really, what is technology doing to the right to privacy? So those were the kinds of questions I set out to answer. Yeah, I think it's terrific that you're doing that. And I think the courts are struggling with that. You know, recently, there has there's this division among um, when you're arrested, whether your cell phone could be searched. And in Ohio recently, they the Supreme Court of Ohio said, no, you cannot search a cell phone. It's not like a cigarette package. It's, you know, it's not like somebody's pockets when they're arrested. But the California Supreme Court recently said that you could search a cell phone. And and if you think about what you've got on your cell phone, everybody, you know, I'm pretty bad on my on my BlackBerry, I mean, I don't carry anything uh, sensitive, but, you know, I have a lot of things on there. I have all my contact file, who my friends are, my, you know, my emails are on there, my text messages are on there, you know, all this privacy that's uh, of my friends and family and clients that are exposed and not everything's encrypted. So, you know, I mean, that in itself is, you know, even the courts are struggling with this. Oh, they certainly are, Mari. And I think that, you know, one of the problems that you run into all the time with the courts and, and with the legislatures as well is that they have a hard time really keeping pace with technology. And I think in some instances, you've got justices who are still looking at the cell phone basically as a mobile version of the old Bell telephone that's on everybody's desk, or at least used to be, you know, where the only thing really was that it made phone calls. And yes, you might have a contact list or something like that. But, you know, really, for all intents and purposes, the smartphones that the majority of Americans are carrying around are actually small computers. They're not, they're more computer-like than they're phone-like. And I think that it has been pretty clear in, in both the state and federal courts that you do require a separate warrant in order to to do a further investigation of a computer, because there's a recognition that there's all of this information potentially far beyond the scope of any stop or any search and seizure that could be uncovered you know, through a casual investigation of the computer. Well, I think phones actually have crossed that threshold, and that once a police officer has effected an arrest and there's no exigent circumstances that require some sort of immediate investigation into the phone, that as long as they have control of that device, they should be required to get a warrant. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was just reading from the Fourth Amendment, that, you know, no search, unreasonable search will be made unless you have a warrant. And like you said, as long as law enforcement has actually taken the phone and they've got it in their possession, just, you know, get a warrant. But that isn't what happened at, at the California Supreme Court. So I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens as we go forward and um, wh- how how the U.S. Supreme Court is going to deal with that. Because mm-hmm. eventually they will, of course. They're going to have to. Yeah. They're going to have to. I agree with that. Yeah. So let's talk about the history of American privacy, and it stretches back 400 years. You want to just kind of give us an overview? <laughs> sure. <laughs> I, know, I mean, that's your book. I know it's your whole book. But, you know, I mean. It, Absolutely. Yeah. We can do the cocktail party version. <laughs> 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 Sounds great to me. So imagine yourself holding a nice glass of wine while we do this. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. Just, I mean, if you go to a party, people are going to say, so what's your new book about? <laughs> Tell us what's your book about, Fred. <laughs> so here's the thing. Um, I think that, you know, what startled me was that, um, 
you know, there were so many points at, in the history of our country where you'd take a look at, at the concept of privacy, and then you'd ask yourself, well, wait a minute, where did that come from? And of course, you know, in order to write any book, you have to draw a line somewhere. So finally, it, it seemed to me that the place to start was with our, by our, I'm really talking about you know, Massachusetts, but with our Massachusetts forebears, um, who were the pilgrims, of course. And they originated um, in the woods and fields of England, where, as separatists, they were literally hiding from the Queen of England, Elizabeth I, um, in their efforts to establish religious freedom, um, which was not only a heretical act, given the Church of England, but it was actually a treasonous act as well. And so, for them, this concept of privacy, the ability to worship as they saw fit, was incredibly crucial. And it was crucial enough that they you know, first went to Holland for a period of you know, 10, 12, 14 years, and then eventually made the incredible decision to brave the November uh, seas and, and sail across to the, uh, to the North American continent. It was really a, a remarkable thing. And there were a lot of things that drove it, but absolutely one of the things that compelled them to move to this part of the world was this idea that they wanted the freedom, the space from the government, to exercise their religious beliefs. It was, it was a very uh, important issue for them. And you know, so that's, that's really, I think, the origins of this concept of privacy, this view of the relationship between individual citizens and their government, um, so that there's space for people to have um, separate beliefs, separate opinions. And out of all of these ideas of you know, the pilgrims, you can see the evolution eventually, um, you know, 170-odd years later, to the Bill of Rights, you know, which in my way of thinking, or, or based on the research I did, is really altogether an embodiment of this concept of privacy. And I think one of the things that's interesting about this, Mari, is that if you go through the founding documents of our government, you don't find the word privacy or any variation on privacy anywhere in those documents at all. Right. So you do have people who are originalists, like Justice Scalia, for instance, who would make the argument that there's no right to privacy inherent in the Constitution because it wasn't written. But I think that that's an unnaturally and unnecessarily narrow view of what that document is supposed to be. And I think Justice Douglas, who later um, found the right of privacy or announced the right of privacy in the mid-60s, was absolutely correct that if you look at the intent behind various amendments that were made in the Bill of Rights, it is clear that those, um, those amendments are designed to establish a particular relationship between citizens and their government. So, for instance, if you've got the freedom of speech, you have the freedom of assembly, um, you have the right to bear arms even, um, certainly the Fourth Amendment to be free from unreasonable search and seizure, the Fifth Amendment, the right to remain silent, these rights are, at their core, the right to privacy, the right to maintain your own private beliefs, um, your own private thoughts, and this idea that you cannot be compelled to turn them over to the government without due process is, I think, the essence of privacy, at least vis-a-vis -vis the government. Now, we've got a different issue with respect to corporations, um, but if you look at how that um, language was written and and the debates that were taking place, I actually feel quite strongly that, that the support for the right to privacy is quite strong. 
it became an actual concept in 1890 when Louis Brandeis and Samuel Warren, who were two Harvard Law School grads and classmates, uh, formed a law firm in Boston. And they set about writing a few um, law review articles. And the first of them was entitled The Right to Privacy. Right. And that's where they actually urged state courts in particular, but also state legislatures, to recognize a new tort or a new injury claim based on invasion of an individual's privacy. And interestingly, what they were really really focusing on at the time was the misappropriation of an individual's image because the um, Instamatic camera had just been perfected by George Eastman, who called it the Kodak camera, and hence Kodak Camera Company. But it sparked this absolute wave of instant photography. And people were starting to take other people's photos and put them into the newspapers and use them in advertisements and so forth without the photograph subject's permission. And so Brandeis and Warren were saying, wait a minute, now we've got the ability to capture someone's image and use it, for instance, in um, auto insurance or health insurance advertisements without their permission. Um, That ultimately, I think 15 years later, was the first case in which the right to privacy was upheld. Wouldn't they turn over in their grave if they saw the Internet? (laughs) Oh, my God. If they would see how people's images are are used and put on dinosaurs or whatever, even worse, you know, I mean, oh, they would die. I know, but the one thing I will say, (laughs) and every time I go back and read it, I I marvel at how foresighted Brandeis were. Incredible. They were. They were so far-seeing. And actually, to give Brandeis particular credit, because he wound up on the Supreme Court, of course, Right. In 1927, in Olmsted v. United States, when the Supreme Court was looking at, for the first time, at the issue of whether or not warrantless wiretapping was a violation of the Fourth Amendment, and they ruled five to four that it was not, which basically made warrantless wiretapping legal for the next 45-odd years, um, Brandeis wrote one of the most blistering dissents I've ever seen, in which he went even further in predicting the onslaught of technology. I mean, right. the guy's vision was, was staggering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Incredible, incredible. So, so all right, so we, we got past the, the beginning of American privacy. And, you know, I think it was interesting because people don't realize that the Constitution doesn't have the word privacy in it. However, the California Constitution does grant a right to privacy. I think there's five states that actually have it in their Constitution, which California is one of them, which kind of makes sense because we probably have produced more privacy legislation than any other state. (laughs) And then it blew my mind with this cell phone thing. I mean, I thought, oh my goodness, you know, Ohio is so backward. And then they said that you couldn't search a cell phone upon arrest. And California said the opposite. It just, it actually blew my mind. It was Well, you know, it's interesting, actually, because right about the time that the Georgia Supreme Court recognized a right to privacy in common law, um, which they, you know, they clearly cited Brandeis and Warren's article when they did so, um, it was about that same time that Washington State was admitted to the United States, and they incorporated a right to privacy into their constitution as well. I think they're one of the other states um, that you mentioned. And I thought that was really interesting that you could really see that that intellectual progress of the idea that Brandeis and Warren started. Right. 
when I think about Thomas Jefferson and I think about the founding fathers, I mean, really, freedom was equated quite a bit with privacy. I mean, you couldn't have real freedom without some level of privacy. Absolutely. Yeah. Right, because you need room to make decisions. Right. And that's the thing. If you don't have privacy, this is one of the things that I want to talk about in terms of corporations. If, If you don't have room to make your own decisions, if... So much information is known about you that your choices are limited by someone who's making an offer to you or something like that. Then not only are you losing privacy, but in fact you are losing a piece of freedom as well. Absolutely, and and when everything is not transparent and you don't know what's going on, yes. then you can be manipulated so much easier. So you lose so much freedom when you have no control over what is being said about you or shared about you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So let's get back to why were the um, why were general warrants really so hated by the American colonists? Well, the short answer is because such a significant percentage of them were smugglers, and they didn't. Oh, really? Like <laughs> <laughs> the tea? The <laughs> well, it was a whole bunch of things, and actually, a good chunk of it was um, cane sugar and so forth coming out of the uh, West Indies. Ah. But you know, one of the one of the dirty little secrets of uh, the colonies is you know, just the percentage of family fortunes that were, you know, created by smuggling up and down the coast. <laughs> but, you know, interestingly, at the time that we're talking, which is the mid-1700s, um, the British crown was facing um, serious cost overruns in fighting the French and Indian War on the North American continent. And the parliament felt not wholly unreasonably that some of the cost of, of the campaigns should be borne by the American colonies. So they started imposing all of these tariff taxes right. on goods coming in and out of the colonies. And so smuggling was sort of the natural reaction right, of right. a lot of New Englanders. And Parliament passed the general warrants to give the portmasters the authority to conduct any search anywhere at any time whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And the warrants were never-ending. Um, the only thing that, that limited the the power of the warrant was the lifespan of the king or queen. And there was no reporting back to a judicial authority um, to talk about where where the searches had been done or what had been seized. So I think what the colonists protested most strenuously about was the potential abuse of authority that, you know, the portmaster and his um, subordinates could walk into any house in the city and conduct an investigation pursuant to these warrants. And they were seen as being a true violation of the common law rights of British citizens. And, of course, the relationship of the colonies to the crown as a whole was a little dicey. But what ended up happening, I think this is one of the great stories that I came across when I was doing this research, is that um, when George II died, um, there was a brief period of time before Parliament got around to reissuing the general warrants under George III, and there was just time enough, and as a lawyer you'll appreciate this, for a, you know, for a lawsuit on behalf of the merchants of Boston to be filed in the colonial court. And there was a man working for the Crown named James Otis, and he was so inspired by the arguments of the merchants that these violated the common rights of British citizens that he resigned and took up their cause pro bono. Wow. It was amazing. And yeah. he, Somebody was, with a conscience. <laughs> oh, he, he, he had an oversized body and an oversized conscience. Wow, that's great. It. And he gave a five-hour oration 
against the general warrants in the old state house in Boston, um, in front of the um, colony court. And it, sitting in the audience was a young lawyer, someone who had just passed the bar named John Adams. Mm-hmm. And uh, writing years later, he said that the speech that Otis gave lit the flame of the American Revolution, that, that every argument he was making would come to inspire the colonists in their fight against the crown. It was just an amazing moment. Um, and actually, about a year ago, a little more than a year ago, I had a chance to do a panel discussion in that same room. And it was it was just amazing, Mari. Oh, his energy was still there, huh? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. Now, these general warrants, you didn't have to have probable cause. All you had to have was was this thing in your hand that, yep. that was from the king. So there was no reasonable cause or anything. Right. And I think to make it relevant to today, what makes the California decision so disturbing is that it's very close to a general warrant. Yes, it's like anything goes. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so I, I feel relatively comfortable in, in suspecting that Mr. Otis would have been equally horrified. I know. <laughs> we got to channel him in here. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I want you are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, the host of Privacy Piracy. And we have a wonderful guest today. He is the author of American Privacy, the 400-Year History of Our Most Contested Right, Fred Lane, Frederick S. Lane. You can learn more about him at fredericklane.com. It's a great book, very fascinating. I, I love history. We can learn so much from it. One of my favorite guys, obviously, from the past was Ben Franklin. And how did he contribute to the origins of American privacy? He's a great character. I mean, I, I imagine... A great lover, I'm, I heard, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he loved a lot of things, and women were not least among them. <laughs> but I think the thing that most people don't know about Ben Franklin, I mean, there's probably a fair no- amount, but he was actually a colonial postmaster under the crown of England for about 27 years. Right. Um, he had his printing shop in Philadelphia, and he got uh, appointed as a co-postmaster um, Sometime in the, oh, I guess right around the 1745-1750 period. And um, up until the um, revolution, you know, served served as a postmaster for the central part of the uh, colonies. And after, um, after Lexington and Concord and so forth and the rebellion, the crown basically fired him. And then he took over for the uh, United States and became the country's first postmaster general. The thing about him, that um, even when he was working for the Crown, he was incredibly instrumental in establishing the concept of male privacy. Um, and not male as in female, but, you know, M-A-I-L. Yeah, yeah. And up until that time, you know, the handling of male had been very casual, very sloppy altogether. And he and his uh, co-postmaster created very strict regulations on who could receive mail and who could open it. Um, they instituted the practice of locked mailbags and things like that. So this age-old tradition, and honestly, mail is still the most private communication that we have by a long shot. Snail mail. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, right, exactly. It, 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 that really can be traced back to Ben Franklin's belief that when you sealed a letter, only the person to whom it was addressed should open it. 
Well, during the colonies, weren't some of the governors even looking through the mail to see if there was any subterfuge going on or anything? Oh, like? absolutely. Yeah. Which is one of the reasons that the colonists developed what were known as committees of correspondence. And they were essentially private mail carriers, you know, using messengers and couriers and so forth to avoid that precise problem. Interesting. Yeah. 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 So, you, you know, and this is kind of worrisome about, you know, people think that their their email and their text messages are are covered that way. And we were so used to knowing that we have privacy with regard to our snail mail that a lot of people just assume that their email is private. And if you're right. using your company's email address and, and you know, it's theirs and you're using their email you know, from the company, then it's not yours. I mean, that's what a lot of these courts are saying, is that you have a right to see that. Right. Well, there's a couple of points about that, Mari, which I think are are useful. Number one, at some point, we just made a huge mistake calling it electronic mail. You know, we should have come up with some other word to make it clear that it's not mail. It's it's an electronic message. And And it should have never had that sort of cachet of correspondence or mail, because it just isn't that it's not treated the same either um, physically or legally. So, you know, I think there is a huge misconception. And then to piggyback on the point that you were making, it's even worse than that though, because it's sort of intuitive that if you use the company's email address to write a private email, that the company would be able to read it. But I think where people sort of get a little bit confused sometimes is this idea that they're using Google or Hotmail or something like that at their company computer, and they're thinking to themselves, well, as long as I use my private Gmail account, I'm all set. Right. And that's absolutely not true. Um, Again, the courts have made it clear that anything that you do on the company computer or the company network can be examined by the employer because it's traveling across their wires. Now, I would think that that doesn't apply to whether what with your own cell phone that you buy with your own money. That's true. N- not a not a business BlackBerry, but if you're at, at work and you're using your own cell phone, right. then that's different. But if you have a BlackBerry that's issued to you or an iPhone that's issued to you by your company, that's probably a grayer area, isn't it? It absolutely is. As a matter of fact, I don't think it's gray at all. I think that the upshot of it would simply be that because it is company equipment, they have a right to inspect all activity that takes place on that device. I wonder what that would be if they encrypt something. Like I'm I'm always advising my clients to encrypt everything they send to me, you know, never to send me an email on their business email account anyway. Mm-hmm. But I'm telling them anything that's sensitive, you need to encrypt as an attachment, never send it to me. I wonder if they would have the right to decrypt, to force an employee to decrypt things. Well, Probably they'd they'd do it sort of at the predicate of that, which is that they'd have an Internet um, acceptable use policy, Uh which would prevent the use of encryption on company equipment for precisely that reason. Because, you know, it would obviously sort of defeat the general legal principle if you could, for instance, send out your company's trade secrets encrypted. Right. (laughs) Although there was just a case here in California that recently that... um, an employee had been communicating by email with, I can't remember if it was a guy or a girl, but with their in um, their attorney. And 
you know, usually the attorney-client privilege is sacrosanct, you know, that you no, don't, but that was, that was not the case. The court came down and said, no, if you're using the email and the email account of your employer, that you have no attorney-client privilege, which I thought was really, some, well, uh, especially because they were talking about <laughs> employment lawsuit. <laughs> that was, uh, but I mean, that, that basically said that that, tr- you know, your privacy is trumped yeah. by that, yeah. which I, I thought was going a little far, you know, I, from my perspective. I, I, I'm sympathetic to that idea. I think that the problem is, again, the sort of broader understanding of how technology works, because you know as well as I do that if you hold a, a conversation with your attorney in, in, the, in the presence of a third party, then right. you've broken attorney-client privilege, right. at least in, in terms of that conversation. So I could see the court arguing. Except if that, it's a mediator or something like right, that. Right, yeah, so, yeah, right. Yeah, right. But, but if, for instance, you're doing it at a lunch counter for some bizarre reason. Right. Um, and I could see a court saying that effectively the company's a third party to that conversation. Right. Yes. So you have to have really good policies. And if you're yeah. an, an employee listening to this, you better read those policies. And the smartest thing is is just don't ever send anything personal on your company cell phone or your company computer or your company iPad or anything. Just don't do it on there. Right. And I think that you're, you put your finger on it, which is that, you know, if it's possible to do so, have a separate smartphone yes. on which you do all of your personal business. And, you know, with the smartphones that are available these days, um, you can do all of your email, you can do a lot of your banking, you can do all of the kind of personal stuff that you would want to do but you're doing it wirelessly and you're not using company equipment. And that's absolutely the best solution. Right. So let's get back to what happened with the uh, wireless wiretapping, because we're kind of back there again. (laughs) (laughs) So kind of give us a little bit more, you know, you were talking about that earlier. Sure. Why did the Supreme Court back in 1927 permit warrantless wiretapping? And how is that the same or different nowadays? Well, interesting questions. Um, the the historical piece is a little bit easier to answer. Um, the Supreme Court at the time was under the leadership of uh, William Howard Taft, and he actually wrote the majority opinion and argued that when the FBI agents who wiretapped Mr. Olmsted's home did so, they didn't actually go into his home. They they put the wiretaps on wires outside of his home, going into the building. But they never actually entered his building. And so from the majority's point of view in that particular case, there was no search or seizure or any other violation of the Fourth Amendment. And what they specifically said was that because Mr. Olmsted chose to broadcast his voice to the world, as it were, (laughs) the um, FBI was entitled to capture it. And you know, keep in mind, this is an outrageous case. They were they were um, in the process of investigating a uh, rum running operation across um, state line. Actually, I guess it was across um, national border with Canada, and they they recorded Mr. Olmsted's conversations for eight months with a team of transcribers who sat there twenty four seven, you know, waiting for the phone calls to come in or go out, and they had volumes upon volumes of his personal and and, um, you know, sort of criminal enterprise conversations that they transcribed and introduced in court. 
So it was a huge operation. But from the court's perspective, absent some kind of you know, physical intrusion, the Fourth Amendment wasn't implicated. As I said, it took 45 years for that to be reversed. But what ended up happening was that the Warren Court in 1967, I think, 67, 66, um, in a case called uh, Katz versus United States, took a look at another criminal case in which the FBI had put a listening device on the outside of one of those old-fashioned glass phone booths that you and I probably remember. Yes, yes. <laughs> but uh, Mr. Katz was uh, involved in some sort of small gambling um, operation. And he challenged on Fourth Amendment grounds the warrantless uh, recording of his conversations. And this time the court said that we have a zone of privacy around us that we carry with us, even outside of our own home. And where there is a reasonable expectation of privacy, the government cannot intrude upon that without a warrant. And so in that particular case, they felt that Mr. Katz had a reasonable expectation of privacy. I mean, he pulled the door shut on the glass phone booth. And that, from the court's perspective, was an indication that he expected his conversation to be private. So interesting about the zone of privacy and the expectation of privacy. Fast forward to yep. Bush administration. 2005, right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So tell us about that. Well, this was, this was really, I think, in some ways, the, the specific spark for this book, because I opened the book with the story about the discovery that the National Security Administration was building secret rooms and telephone um, exchange buildings, um, primarily on the West Coast, but elsewhere as well, where they were installing um, splitters on what are called the Internet backbones. That is to say, the major pipelines that carry um, you know, large, large quantities of Internet information from one part of the country to the next. And the splitter was dividing or, or copying the stream of data with one half the stream just continuing on its normal path and the other half going into these incredibly powerful high-speed computers where they were being analyzed for potential terrorist information. So, you know, the justification, I think, was pretty clear-cut that we were not that far from 9-11. Right. There was an ongoing effort to try to keep the country safe. They were looking for al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda, they were looking for uh, bin Laden, they were looking for who knows what. And they felt that they were entitled to do this under the terms of the Patriot Act. And I think that you know one of the things that is probably the most disturbing is how fast that law was passed yes. and the number of privacy laws that it took aim at. And I think that one of the arguments that I make in the book, and I, I still believe this quite strongly, is that many pieces of the Patriot Act were sitting on shelves waiting for an opportunity to be passed. And I think that there was a lot of good intent behind the Patriot Act, but I think there, it was also an opportunistic bill um, for folks who felt that privacy laws had gone too far. And so what you end up having is a law that you know, certainly gave investigatory agencies the belief that they could engage in this kind of warrantless surveillance. And where things got a little bit tricky, of course, is that while 
you know, there's not very much clear-cut legislation with respect to Internet traffic. A lot of phone traffic goes across those same wires in the form of digital conversations. So clearly the NSA was listening to phone conversations without a warrant. And that was what a lot of the flap was about as Congress tried to figure out, number one, whether to extend the Patriot Act, but more importantly, whether or not the phone companies were potentially liable for permitting this warrantless wiretapping to occur. And they found that they were not. Well, they not that they found that, but they actually right. passed legislation. Right, that's what I mean. And they, yeah. yeah, and they decided that they were not. Yeah, which, you know, there, there I can understand some of the policy reasons, but I certainly think from a legal perspective, there wasn't much question that they were. Yes. And that this was a law really designed to, um, you know, save their, their chestnuts, as it were. And, and that goes on today. Mm-hmm. I mean, fast Ab- forward yeah. to 2011. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, we can have a very wholehearted and legitimate debate about the competing policy concerns between privacy and homeland security. And I think that that's a great debate to have. But what makes everything so much more difficult, and where I get a great deal more suspicious, is that the terms of the Patriot Act are such that it is incredibly difficult to find out if these kinds of warrantless investigations are even occurring. And so what the law has effectively done is cut out the traditional monitoring of the federal court system so that you have some check on what's taking place. And, you know, I think where we get back to the history piece of this, Mari, is that we are a nation that is um, not terribly good at remembering what's occurred. And if you go back really only about 40 years and you look at what the Nixon administration did with the military during the Vietnam War, where the White House was ordering the United States Army to conduct surveillance on what it considered to be domestic dissidents, you really can see the potential for misuse. And certainly the Nixon administration went a lot further than that in terms of harassing individuals that it thought um, were potentially dangerous. It actually, of course, drafted an enemies list that it specifically targeted. And then ultimately, when Nixon was impeached, Congress felt that the White House's behavior against privacy was so outrageous that they made that one of the um, articles of impeachment. Yes. And and isn't that about the time when, or soon after, when we got the U.S. Privacy Act? That was what, 1974? 74. 74, yeah. Right. Absolutely. Um, and then a little bit later... And I remember watching. I was, you know, I remember watching the Watergate hearings. Sure. I remember that, you know, yeah, and so John Dean and all that stuff. If you're, you know, I'm thinking of the students here on campus probably think, oh my gosh, that was, you know, ages ago. But it was a time, I think I was in college or, but yeah, no, I, yeah, I was, out, I was just out of college. And it was, a, it was a scary time to think that all this was going on and what was happening to our freedom and our privacy. Right. Well, I think the underlying point is not that government inherently will misuse information. Um, Frankly, corporations are much more likely to than government. But on the other hand, you know, governments do misuse information sometimes. And we have examples of U.S. governments that have done that. And so I think you need the checks and balances in order to make sure that that is less likely to occur. And what the Patriot Act does, which is most invidious, is that it weakens that checks and balance mechanism that has served us so long. Yeah, you have a list here in your book on uh, 
page 248 on all of the 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 legislation that we've worked so hard to get that protected our privacy that pretty much um, is undermined by the Patriot Act. You've got the wiretap statute. Um, you've got the Electronic Communications Privacy Act in 86, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act of 1986, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Why don't we talk about that? The FISA court. That's mm-hmm. That's pretty interesting. I remember when that whole brouhaha was going on and was revealed, we, we had people from uh, the Center for Democracy and Freedom here yeah. talking about it. And, uh, you know, you just have a whole list of them that seem to be undermined. Well, I think that they definitely are. And, you know, I, I, I do want to stress the, the importance of making it possible for government to effectively protected citizens. Right. You but know, if they're collecting too much information, then they're going to miss things like they well, did with 2001, 9-11, you know? Right. Sure. Well, that's certainly, that's the practical side of things. There's absolutely no, no question that, you know, if you overwhelm the intelligence agencies with information, then it just becomes a fog. And that's not particularly helpful either. The, the flip side is that you don't want to create a situation where government feels like it can make use of whatever information it has without the potential for a checks and balances type situation. And so, you know, a lot of the second half of my book is really aimed at looking at the various forces that make that possible, the rise of mainframe computers, for instance, um, the vast amounts of information that businesses collect about individuals that are now available to the FBI through the Patriot Act. So you get this essentially, uh, you get what is essentially a backdoor to the Fourth Amendment. And, got, and the Privacy Act. The Privacy Act says that you're not going to have any private or, or secret databases, yet government can buy from LexisNexis, Axiom, well, that's, <laughs> Choice Point. Right, right. I mean, that's what they're doing. All these huge sure. data brokers are are collecting this information for their for what was and I'm sure is in existence now that total information awareness program that they oh, said yeah. was you know that was down the line. Well, that that's actually a fun story because you had John Poindexter coming in after the Patriot, excuse me, after nine eleven, um, you know, basically putting together this total information awareness program. I'm sure you must remember what he had carved over the door of his office in the Pentagon. Uh, scientia es potentia, which is knowledge is power, which was basically just like this, you know, come and get me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, good old Pat Leahy, who's head of the Judiciary Committee in our Senate, our senior senator here in Vermont, um, had a complete cow about that. And, uh, you know, they, they said that they shut it down. But honestly, Mary, if you, if you take a look at the um, various white papers that have been issued, it is absolutely clear the different components of that program just quietly spun off to different corners of the Pentagon. They just and, call it different names. Yeah, exactly, right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so I tried to document some of that in the book as well. You know, honestly, I think one of the big stories in all of this, and you know, it's my predilection, I guess, because of the computer forensics, is the relationship of computers and their development over the years you know, to this concept of privacy. And it's, it's a fascinating story because really, um, again, there are roots to it, but if you look at the 1950s when we're getting into the post-World War II era and you've got IBM developing 
these amazing mainframe computers, and they start showing up at the Internal Revenue Service and Social Security and the census. And all of a sudden, people begin to see the potential for accumulating and, more importantly, processing data right. at incredible speeds. And then the next thing is the credit bureaus start to use the computers. You know, and you begin to get this development, and you couldn't have done it before this, of the national credit card system, because that is entirely predicated on instantaneous credit checks. Right. And that, again, is all computer-based. But in turn, the fact that you now have credit cards means that every single transaction is more data for the computers. And so it's more a way to surveil you, too, because exactly, it's right there. Exactly right. So it's just, this, it's just this fascinating reciprocal relationship. And, you know, this is the whole thing that, that privacy was just really ignored in, in so many ways until we got the, you know, the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Right. But, but in, in essence, you know, privacy is not built into the architecture of all this technology. Of course not. No. And, you know, that's what they're talking. The new, the new mantra is privacy by design, which I, which I love, actually. Mm. <laughs> privacy by design is supposed to be how you start thinking of privacy as you design the new technology. Right. But it's, we're like, oh, the catch-up is crazy. Oh, well, of course. And, and in some ways, you, you never quite would. But I'll tell you, this is one of the ways in which legislation can have a positive impact. Because the thing about privacy is it's not, it, when, we t when, when we talk about protecting privacy, it's not about protecting specific kinds of information, because you and I might have very different ideas about what we consider to be private, right, right. which is totally fine. But what you and I would probably not disagree about is that we want the ability to control what information we think is private and is not. Exactly. So I think the essence of privacy, really, is the ability to control what information gets collected and where it goes. And that seems to me to be precisely the kind of thing that Congress could, in fact... And how do. it's used. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I completely believe that Congress could craft effective rules and regulations to put some checks on what companies do with information that they collect. Well, you know, the Fair Credit Reporting Act really is is a is a great, um, you know, when you look at the privacy implications and how we have some protections there. I mean, it really is, it's a good architecture for that. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, agree. so that you know, we get to see it, we get to correct it, we right. get to see who else saw it, we get to see where it goes, we get to see what it means to us. So, I mean, that's that's the one thing I remember. I, I had testified in Congress for Senator Bill Nelson in Florida because I, he had written some legislation, S-500, several years ago that would make the information brokers, for example, be held accountable to something similar to the Fair Credit Reporting Act because they keep saying they're not, okay? Right, right. Choice Point and Axiom and LexisNexis and all these big and little information brokers, by the way, we're talking about zillions of them on the web, um, they, they were, it was a framework very similar to the Fair Credit Reporting Act that you could see your background check, you could, you could correct it. You know, I just spent since August until now 
trying to settle a case, which we finally did against an information broker that had sold erroneous information about my poor client saying that he was a criminal. Mm. And to get that corrected and then corrected with all the other places that it was seen by. I mean, it was it was a nightmare. It really was a nightmare. And California has very good legislation like that, but uh, most other states don't have it and the federal government doesn't have it. So, you know, this gets back to, you know, we've got a framework that kind of works. Obviously, there's they're supposed to have accurate data. And when they don't have accurate data, they can be sued. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, even though 70% of credit reports have errors, and 30% <laughs> of those are enough to keep you from getting a job or a house or a car, um, at least at least you have that right to see it's transparent. There's so many other things you don't know. You know, it's like that uh, no-buy list. You can't even see that. The tre- You know, the Treasury Department has that no-buy list mm-hmm. that you can't buy a house if you're on some list. <laughs> Did you know that? There's like a no-buy <laughs> list? Yeah, by the Treasury Department. Just like the no-fly list and the, and the, you know, watch list. You know, you don't know how you got on it and you don't know how to get it off, get off of it. And it's not transparent. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I talked to somebody else in Washington about that. No, by Liz, that was just a book. So, you know, I mean, so is privacy dead? I mean, is there any hope for us? Oh, I, I definitely think there is. I think, number one, you pointed to it with the privacy by design, you know, because the thing is the people who design software and who design products, you know, they have their own privacy concerns. So you're going to find some people out there who will actually start building products that are more privacy sensitive. And I think that that's, that's hopeful. Number two, I do think that there is a potential for Congress to act in this area. I think that you are beginning to see enough people become concerned about fundamental questions of privacy that it's got some political weight to it. And I think, obviously, that's what makes politicians sort of wake up and smell the coffee. Um, so I'm hopeful that they will actually do something. And then I think, thirdly, and I talk a little bit about this in the conclusion of the book, Education is a huge piece of this, you know, because we need to educate kids in particular about what the implications are of sharing too much information and really help them to appreciate, you know, that there's a balance between the social networking piece of their lives and then information that they ought to think twice about disclosing. Well, this is great that you're bringing this up because here we are, you know, at the campus at the University of California and everybody uses Facebook and everybody uses these dating websites and all this stuff. Sure. All right. And so, and and Google and everybody's collecting all this. I don't think it's real transparent. I know for me, I added an app on Facebook and I'm very careful on Facebook, usually very, very careful. I don't put anything private. I only have, you know, public stuff on there. But I added an app that I didn't even know I added. You know, I mean, uh-huh. this and then, of course, that app could collect information. So even though we educate people that there's dangers out there and we educate them, it's not transparent. Do we need legislation to say that, you know, that you, you know, must make the default you know, very, very transparent, and it's got to be opt-in. I mean... Oh, absolutely. This, I mean, and this is one of the many ways, Mari, that, um, you know, Europe is, is ahead of us on this, that they they routinely require opt-in as opposed to opt-out, which is what we tend to do in the United States. And I definitely think that that would be a good step forward. 
I think when you talk about transparency, my you know immediate thought is you know large internet related companies like Google and Facebook and America Online and so forth. I have done some work for some clients trying to find out basic information from Facebook, and it's incredibly difficult unless you're actually involved in some kind of court proceeding and you can issue a subpoena to those organizations. It's virtually impossible for the average individual to find out basic information about their account, about who might have had access to it, that kind of thing. So I think there does need to be some sort of legislation or preferably some sort of effective industry action that makes these companies more transparent given the amount of information that they have about all of us. Right. I think that's absolutely true. And let me you know, just point out to your listeners that there's been a lot of recent conversation about the ways in which um, mobile apps are collecting information, oftentimes without our, our knowledge. And what makes that particularly disturbing, I think, is that so much of it is location-based information because, obviously, you've got GPS built into these phones. And so a lot of the fun games that we play and the services that we use and so forth collect much more information than I think people are aware. Right. And we don't have a lot of time, but I think you have a wonderful suggestion at the end of your book that we need a privacy protection commission. I'm not sure if that's exactly what you call it, but I know you and I had talked before that the European Union countries, you know, even Australia, New Zealand, all the European countries, they all have privacy commissions and now our president has put together this privacy committee. So what are your thoughts about that, if you could just tell us in a minute? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, Mark. Well, you know, first of all, a quick shout-out to Senator Sam Irvin, who I think really uh, got this idea off the ground following the Watergate investigation, where he clearly saw a need for some sort of body at the federal level. I think the basic concept is pretty straightforward. Privacy is a big enough issue in this country and of such sweeping importance to people that we need an organization or an agency on the model of the Environmental Protection Agency or the Food and Drug Administration or um, some of these others that we deal with that can really help to establish the rules and guidelines for how privacy is dealt with. And have some power to do something. Absolutely. I think that they should be a rulemaking organization they should establish industry standards that would help support private lawsuits in the event that companies breach that. Think about, for instance, companies that routinely lose laptops with private data. Um, there clearly should be more consequences for that happening. And I think that this kind of agency could, could do that. It could also provide some of the education that I've talked about um, that I think is so important for all of us. Well, you are providing wonderful education. I love your book, American Privacy, The 400-Year History of Our Most Contested Right, which is Privacy, by Frederick S. Lane. And Fred, we're going to have to have you back again, especially when you come out with the new book, that cyber book. Yes. Um, I well, definitely want you to send that to me, and we are going to have another show. You are just terrific, and what a, what a joy to have you on the show. Well, I really appreciate it. It's been a wonderful conversation, and I Glad to uh, talk to you anytime. Okay, we'll talk to you soon. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. right here on KUCI. Visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Listen to our archive interviews and download podcasts and write us emails about what you think 
about privacy in the information age. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.